Father, we are so thankful that, that we get to engage in fellowship here at GCF. Thank you for all of our small group leaders and our discipleship group leaders. Lord, thank you for all the people that sacrifice so much time to lead these groups and help all of us to engage in fellowship. Lord, I pray that you would bless and prosper all of our small groups and discipleship groups this fall. Lord, I pray that, that all the new folks here this morning would, would eventually find their way into a small group where they can experience the life of the church. Lord, now we pray that you would send your spirit, help us to not only understand, but very specifically apply the words of this great text to our lives. Lord, we are incredibly dependent on you more than we even know or can imagine. Come now, Spirit of God, work mightily. Do what only you can do. Bring life and change and hope through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. When you hear the word power, what is the first thing you think of? Maybe you think of political power. Maybe you think of financial power. Right now, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion. He has a lot of financial power. Maybe you're thinking of military power. Our president, Joe Biden, is the commander-in-chief of the world's strongest military. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Maybe you think of muscles. Maybe you're thinking of the world's strongest man, who is not me, by the way. Um, his name is Oleski Novikov, and last year he won the world's strongest man competition. Maybe you're thinking of power tools or a powerful car. Well, when the sermon is over, when you hear the word power, hopefully you will think of Jesus. That brings us to John 1, 3 to 5, and John is still introducing Jesus. So last week in verses 1 to 3, John introduced the identity of Jesus, and this week he is introducing the power of Jesus in verses 3 to 5. And it's hard this morning to think of a more relevant topic than the power of Jesus, because all of us need access to that power, don't we? No matter how hard we try, so many of us seem to be stuck in patterns of sin. We have a hard time saying no to anger, to anxiety. We have a hard time disciplining ourselves. We have a hard time humbling ourselves before our spouses, our roommates, our children. We are all very, very aware, I think, of our desperate need for supernatural power. And that power is found in Jesus. Well, what kind of power does Jesus have? This text highlights at least three components of the power of Jesus. He has power to create, power to bring life, and power to overcome. So first, this morning, is power to create. Look with me at John 1, verse 3. All things... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In verse 3, consider initially the scope of Christ's power, the scope of his power. Notice that John says in John 3 uh, that all things were created through him. In other words, Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. The triune God created all things, but Jesus Christ is the member of the Trinity who is responsible for creating. All things were created through him. Notice also what John says about the scope of creation. John says that all things were created through him. What does all things mean in the Greek? All things. All things. This is confirmed by other texts of Scripture. Consider Colossians 1.16. Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This means that Jesus created all things visible and all things invisible. That is the spiritual realm. He created the laws of nature, the laws of mathematics, the structure of the atom, all the angels and all the demons, everything, and I mean everything, was created by the word of his power. Light travels so fast that it can travel around our little globe seven times in one second. It's 186,000 miles, not per hour, but per second. The speed of light is how far light can travel at that speed in a year. I'm sorry, a light year is how far light can travel in a year, which is roughly, I think, 22 trillion miles in a year, going 186,000 miles per second. The closest star to us is four light years away, again, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you four years to get to the closest star to us in our measly little galaxy. Some stars are 1,000 times the size of the sun, and the sun is 332,000 times the size of planet Earth. As I mentioned a few weeks ago in the Psalm 8 series, Many astronomers believe that the universe is composed of over 200 billion galaxies. And that's a, that's a low estimate. And many of those galaxies contain hundreds of billions of stars within them. The latest estimate is there are one billion trillion stars in the observable universe. Now, when we start talking about millions and billions and trillions, it all just kind of loses its meaning. It just seems like a really big number. But what exactly is a trillion? Let's measure a trillion in time. How long ago was a trillion seconds? If you count backwards, a million seconds was 12 days ago. A billion seconds was 31 years ago. A trillion seconds takes us back to 30,000 B.C. A trillion is a massive number. In decades past, our government printed $1,000 bills. If you stack $1,000 bills, $1 million would be four inches high. 
A billion dollars would be 364 feet high, but a trillion dollars would be 63 miles high. There are over one billion trillion, a billion trillion stars in the known universe. That's a low estimate. And Jesus created all of them by the power of speaking. Let there be, boom, they came into existence. This text highlights the scope of Christ's power. It also highlights the nature of Christ's power. Again, back to verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This last tricky phrase is essentially saying that Jesus created all things, all the things that were made, he made, which means he created all things ex nihilo or out of nothing. This is taught elsewhere in Scripture, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and the earth, that's called a mirrorism in Hebrew. That means everything. And if he created everything, it means that there were not pre-existing materials that he used because he created everything. Colossians 1.16 again says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus created all things out of nothing. Now, because God created the universe out of nothing, there is no matter in the universe that is eternal like Jesus. If there was there'd be something else besides Jesus with the attributes of divineness, eternality. So it's really important that we affirm that Jesus made all things out of nothing. Furthermore, if he used pre-existing materials to create all things, then there'd be something that he did not create. And if that's true, how would he have rights or authority over those things? It's really important, again, to affirm that Jesus made all things out of nothing. If we don't affirm that, we are challenging what theologians call the aseity or the self-existence of God. We confess as Orthodox Christians that before God created all things, there was nothing but the Trinity. That's it. Now, stop and think about nothing for a moment. You can't, can you? What is nothing? Nothing is the absence of all properties. Nothing is no thing. Nothing is not empty space because space is something. Nothing, according to Aristotle, is that thing that rocks think about. Before God created, there was nothing no time, no space, no matter, nothing but the triune God dwelling in perfect harmony and fellowship and unity and love. 
And then God the Son, the agent of creation, spoke, and out of nothing came one billion trillion stars. Out of nothing. Dave, this just sounds like nonsense. This sounds more like a Harry Potter book or a fairy tale to affirm that God created all things out of nothing. That seems unscientific. Well, actually, Einstein proved with his famous theory of general relativity, this is exactly what happened. This is his famous E equals MC squared equation. When Einstein first worked the math for this equation, he was utterly terrified by the implications of the conclusions because he figured out right away that if his math was correct, that meant that time and space and matter are relative to each other. In other words, without time, there's no space and there's no matter and vice versa. So he realized very quickly that means before the universe came into existence, there was nothing. Therefore, something outside of time, space, and matter must have created all things. And at this point, he was terrified because he was not a big fan of theism. So what did he do? He fudged the math. The great Einstein changed the math to meet his own conclusions. And it was called his cosmological constant. And later on in life, he said that was the greatest mistake he ever made in his life, was fudging the math on this famous equation. All that to say is that Einstein proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that before there was anything, there was nothing. Again, what that means is no time, no space, and no matter, implying that the thing that created all things must dwell outside of time and space and matter. Who is the best explanation for that? The triune God of the Bible backed up by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And by the way, for the rest of Einstein's life, he was totally captivated trying to answer the question, what was his creator like? Even the great Stephen Hawking wrote this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. What kind of God are we dealing with? A God of infinite, unimaginable, mind-boggling power. That's what we're dealing with. We can't even create mochas or pizzas out of nothing. Yet God spoke the entire universe into existence out of nothing. That's who we're dealing with. We're talking about incredible power. And you and I and our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the incredible power at God's right hand. Let me ask you a question. Is there a problem you're facing right now that you don't think God has the power to deal with? God is all-powerful. No matter what problem you're facing this morning, God has 
the power to help. Yet so often, if you're like me, you forget to ask God for help in that moment of temptation. Instead, we should say, God, please help me right now to humble myself and shut my mouth and listen to my spouse. Purely hypothetical. <laughs> Actually, last night, my wife and I were having a conflict. <laughs> and it was going nowhere. And I thought, Dave, you're about to preach on this tomorrow. So I finally, like way too late in the conversation, said, God, would you please help me humble myself, shut my mouth, and listen to my wife. And you know what? It worked. God, help me. In that moment, we got to ask, God, please, would you help me not to have that fourth brownie? God, would you help me to please let go of my bitterness? God, would you please help me not to click on this website? God, would you please help me to not be anxious about my kids? It's 1.30 in the morning and they're not back yet. I mean, I'll ground them tomorrow, but just please help me trust you. God, would you please help me to be patient and kind and gentle with my children. God, would you please help me to give this money away? I want to hold on to it. Help me be generous. In those moments, we are asking God for help, and we're talking to the God who created all things out of nothing. There's hope. There's power. He will help you, but you've got to humble yourself and ask him for help. God has the power to create, but he has power to do so much more. Which brings us to the second point. So first, power to create. Second, power to give life. But what kind of life? Eternal life. Look at John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John uses that word life 36 times in the Gospel of John. And it's not the word bios. Uh, that, that's the Greek word for life as in the raccoon's alive, your grandma's still alive, I'm still alive. John uses the word zoe, which is the word for spiritual life. The life that we find in Christ. The life that brings joy and peace and happiness. John wrote this Gospel to help all of us experience this life. John 20, 30 to 31. This is the purpose statement of John's gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, Zoe, in his name. Now, the life that John has in mind refers to a quality of life that you and I can experience the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it's often called eternal life. John 17.3, 
Jesus says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is not thousand-year life or million-year life or billion-year life or trillion-year life. This is eternal life that will last for all eternity, and it begins the moment you submit yourself to King Jesus. This life is transformative. Many years ago, the evangelist Harry Ironside was preaching to a large crowd in the streets of downtown San Francisco. And as he was preaching, a famous atheist walked up to him and handed him a card. And the card said, Sir, I challenge you to debate me on the question of atheism versus Christianity in the Academy of the Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Ironside read the card to himself, then he read it out loud to all those who were present. And then he said, this challenge really interests me. I'm very open to it. I'm very open to debating atheist so-and-so. But to prove that he's serious about his claims, I'm going to lay down one condition. When he comes to the debate next Sunday, he needs to bring with him two people, a man and a woman, and both of them have to stand up and give testimony to how atheism has radically transformed their lives. They need to explain to the crowd how before they believed the gospel of atheism, they lived evil, rotten lives. But as a result of believing the gospel of atheism, they now have more self-control, more willpower, more life, more joy and peace, and they're able to say no to all their bad habits. On the flip side, I will bring with me, Ironside said, 100 people who will all stand up and say, the gospel of Jesus Christ has radically transformed my life. It's changed my behavior, it's given me hope. I used to be like this, have these horrible habits, but now I live more like this as a result of the life I have found in Jesus Christ. If the atheist meets those conditions, I'd be happy to debate him. He never heard from the atheist again. Now, Ironside's not making the point that atheists are immoral people. There are some very moral atheists. He's simply making the point that atheism does not provide life, but Jesus Christ provides life. And that life, that eternal life, has the power to transform us and change us and allow us to experience abundance of joy right now in the present. People often think, well, if I turn to Jesus, it means I have to say no to all these wonderful things. He's going to basically kill all my joy and kill all my fun. But nothing could be further from the truth. Turning to Christ vastly increases one's capacity for joy. The famous British preacher G. Campbell Morgan tells the story of meeting a man who had been converted under his father's ministry. And this man was now an adult, and he'd spent most of his life as an atheist, separated from God and hostile to the things of God. 
Yet much later in his life, he became a Christian. And a few days after his conversion, Morgan saw this man standing in the garden. And this man had this this very bizarre look on his face, this look of wonder and awe. And he was holding something small in his hand. So Morgan walked up to him and, and basically said, what are you holding? And he looked at him and he held up a leaf and he said, the beauty of God. Because for the first time in his life, he realized that God created that leaf. And leaves are beautiful. And apart from a Christian worldview, we can't enjoy things like that. On the other hand, Charles Darwin, his biographer explains that as Darwin aged, Darwin grew more and more committed to secularism. And he lost his capacity for joy. Darwin admitted that as he aged, he no longer got anything out of poetry or music or art. Life lost all of its flavor. He lived in a world without wonder or joy. When we become Christians, all of a sudden the lights go on and we look around and we think, wow, God created all this for his glory and my joy. Turning to Christ causes life to dwell up inside of us. Abundant life is only found in Jesus Christ. John 1, 4. In him, only in Jesus, through union with Christ by faith, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Yet so often, you and I look for life in so many other places, don't we? Thinking that just a little more money will satisfy us. If I can just get married, if I can just have kids, if my kids would just leave the house, if I could climb a little higher on the the corporate ladder, if I could get a few more degrees, if I could get that new car, that new house, take a long vacation, have all my marriage problems fixed, then I would experience life. St. Augustine famously said, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. We're only going to find the life we're looking for in relationship with the triune God. And that relationship needs to be cultivated to experience maximum joy in this life. If I said to you, my wife and I have this amazing, life-giving relationship, but I haven't talked to her in months, she doesn't talk to me, would you believe me? Hopefully not. But how many of us have not talked to God in prayer in months, or heard from God in the scriptures in months? You're not going to experience joy in this relationship if you don't have a relationship. 
Now, yes, we are justified, that is declared righteous, through faith alone and Christ alone, but to experience the joy or the life of Christ, you have to have a relationship with Christ, and that comes by talking to him, hearing from him, being with his people. Dave, I experience this life sometimes but it often feels like the darkness overwhelms me. That brings us to the third point. So first is power to create. Second is power to give life. And third, Christ has power to overcome. Well, what must be overcome? In this text, the darkness must be overcome. John 1, 4, and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, darkness in the Gospel of John is more often than not, um, not just the absence of light, but it's, it's the presence of evil. The revelation that God brings, which is known as light, sheds light on our evil deeds of darkness. And most of us don't like to have our deeds of darkness exposed, do we? Which is why the world hates the things of God. There seems to be a lot of darkness these days, doesn't there? There's the darkness of greed. Our nation is trillions of dollars in debt. There's the darkness of pride, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, there's the darkness of political corruption. There's the darkness of gender confusion and sexual deviancy. There's the darkness of drug addiction, abortion, sex trafficking. Then there's just the darkness of depression, chronic illness, loneliness. Now, we don't have to look outside of ourselves for darkness. We just need to look in the mirror. Because in all of our lives, there are pockets of darkness we don't want exposed. And this darkness seems to overwhelm us at times. It began as just another drizzly day in Spokane, Washington. But by its end, November 19th, 1996, produced one of the region's worst ice storms in 60 years. Trees came crashing down everywhere under the immense weight of the ice. The mayor of Spokane declared a state of emergency as over half the city's residents lost electricity, the worst power outage in 108 years. Three days after the storm, still 100,000 people did not have electricity, power, or light. This storm remains one of the most severe on record in Spokane. Now, I remember Ice Storm 96. How many of you remember Ice Storm 96, okay? I was a sophomore in college. I was home from Wazoo on Thanksgiving break. And I remember, you know, during the day, there's still light, and so you can do stuff. You can play games, uh, hang out with your friends, do all kinds of things. But at 4.30, when it got dark, there was nothing to do. No electricity. No iPhones. No internet. It hadn't been invented by Al Gore back then, so it wasn't around in 96. Um, you couldn't play board games. 
As a result, there were a lot of ice storm babies. But the thing I remember the most was just being bored to tears at 5.30, 6.30, 7.30, 9 o'clock in the evening. Because once it got dark, you could do nothing. It was really hard to experience life in the complete darkness of Ice Storm 96. In a similar sense, spiritual darkness sucks the joy out of spiritual life. And we often feel powerless to do anything about the darkness. So what must be overcome? Darkness. Well, who overcomes the darkness? The light of life. Back to verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, when Jesus shines his light in the world, the darkness tries to extinguish the light, but it can't because Jesus' light shines very brightly. The darkness formed an angry mob to try to kill Jesus early in his ministry, but he walked right through the mob. The darkness attacks Jesus' teaching repeatedly, but he could not be silenced. The darkness falsely accused Jesus of all kinds of evil things, blasphemy, lies, hanging out with drunkards and sinners. The darkness beat him, whipped him, and crucified him. The darkness left him in a cold, empty tomb. But nothing can extinguish the light of Christ. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose victoriously from the grave, proving that no amount of darkness can extinguish the light of the Son of God. Not even the darkness of death, the devil, or all of his demons. And darkness will never prevail against Christ and his followers. The Roman emperors couldn't extinguish the light of the gospel. The rise of Islam in the seventh century could not extinguish the light of the gospel. The Renaissance couldn't extinguish the light of the gospel. The Enlightenment couldn't extinguish the light of the gospel. 20th century communism could not extinguish the light of the gospel. And the new atheists can't extinguish the light of the gospel. Because we're talking about resurrection light. We're talking about Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the grave. And if you're a Christian, that light dwells inside of you. And Jesus Christ will give you power to overcome. The moment that you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, that light shines into your life. And I love how John Wesley describes this with the great 18th century hymn. He says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, 
and follow me. The question is, have you experienced the light of Christ? Has he shown his light into your life? If you haven't, you will dwell in darkness. And hell is described as a place of utter darkness, the outer darkness. But Jesus Christ offers you life and light. But you have to humble yourself. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you love the darkness before he'll come in and shine his light into your life and allow you to experience the life of Christ. If we are Christians, the darkness may seem thick at times. It may seem overwhelming. It may seem like there's nothing we can do about it. But the resurrection of Christ gives us hope. The resurrection of Christ displayed the light and the life of Christ. And the life of Christ now shines as bright as 10,000 suns. No matter what Satan does, he cannot put out that light. If you're a Christian, that resurrection, life and light, will preserve you until the end. Jesus has tremendous power. Well, power to do what? Power to create, power to give life, and power to overcome darkness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he has tremendous power. Thank you that he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. Father, we thank you that he has the power to bring life, which we are in desperate need of. Father, we thank you that he has the power to shine light into our lives. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to humble ourselves and ask you for help. Help us to humble ourselves and ask you to give us power, to give us life, to give us light. Lord, we need this power and we're thankful that you offer it to us freely without charge. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.